When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Edison Hark, the star of The Good Asian, the new comic series written by Pornsack Pichette illustrated by Alexander Tefengi, and published by Image Comics, never signed up to investigate a murder in San Francisco's Chinatown. As the only Chinese-American law enforcement officer in the United States, he traveled to San Francisco in 1996 to help find a Chinese maid who has run away from the household of the man who raised him. But he stumbles upon a crime scene that harkens back to an old crime legend, a hitman for the old tongs, back for revenge. But while the good Asian tells a thrilling noir story of crime, detectives, and investigations, it also tells the story of the Chinese community, who at the time were still under scrutiny under laws like the Chinese Exclusion Act. The comic grapples with ideas of racial prejudice, respectability politics, and identity. Pornsack Pachetchot was a Thai-American rising star editor at DC's Vertigo imprint, where he worked on such comic perennials such as The Sandman and Swamp Thing. He left Vertigo to become an executive in DC Entertainment's media team, where he started and oversaw DC's TV department. He is also the writer of Infidel, also for Image Comics, which was his first work as a writer. Today, Pornsack and I will talk about the setting and genre of The Good Asian, and what it means to star a Chinese-American lead in such a well-known genre. So, Pornsack, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Um, I'd like to start with the setting, you know, San Francisco's Chinatown. During the period when the Good Asian is set, what's that area like? Well, so, I mean, the the area, you know, coming into the 1930s in San Francisco Chinatown, and one of the reasons why I chose it was because there's not a lot talked about it. The Chinese Exclusion Act would be rescinded in 1943. And so at the time, you know, it was, reports at the time were that, um, you know, starting from the Chinese Exclusion Act from 1882, it had a heavy police presence and the, and the Chinatown squad were certainly heavy with their presence all throughout San Francisco. But by the 1930s, um, things had sort of eased up and that they, that they had got, the cops had gotten rid of the tongs, even though that they were terrified that the tongs would come back. And so at the time there was an interesting crossroads where, you know, around the mid 1930s, around 1935, and even the rumor and the slight hints of the tongs that the cops would be known to shut Chinatown down and not let anyone enter or leave. But meanwhile, you had things like what would become known as the chop suey club circuit that were nightclubs built around Chinese Americans performing Western acts that that led a lot of white tourism into Chinatown and helped the local economy. So it was this very interesting crossroads between, on the one hand, the cops being quite scared the tongs would come back, but on the other, Chinese Americans perhaps getting a sense of, oh, maybe there is a slight amount of acceptance towards us and our, and our culture. And that crossroads was one of the reasons why I found it really interesting to set a story in this particular time of 1936. And I guess, what's the history of the Chinese community in the United States at that time? I mean, especially in the early 20th century. I mean, um, obviously, they're Immigration to the United States is is controlled, if not barred entirely. There's 
potential prejudice. But as you note, there's maybe a sense among the community that that maybe they'll finally be accepted in the United States. Kind of. So what's the, the history of the Chinese community um, over, let's say, the early 20th century? I mean, oh, the, of the early 20th century, you know, it, it's a hard thing to sort of encapsulate it in a small period of time. But, you know, coming out of the Chinese Exclusion Act, I think in the early 20th century, probably the biggest thing that happened in Chinatown was the 1908 earthquake. And what happened was it destroyed a lot of the records of, you know, of Chinese citizens at that time, which made, which gave the Chinese the opportunity to come into America under fake names. And that's where a lot of the paper sons uh, aspect of it kind of came in. So around that time, um, you, yeah, I mean, the, the funny thing about Chinatown is that Chinatown didn't change that much until around, you know, around post-World War II, the, the early 1960s, where it would be mostly Chinese people there, and they would be scared to leave Chinatown in fear of getting attacked and, and beating up. And that would be the case drifting down into the 1960s. And one of the reasons why I wanted to set, set the book in this time is, is that, you know, I think Chinatown of that era, you saw in Polanski's uh, movie, you saw it in Dashiell Hammett's short story, Dead Yellow Women. It, it, become, it become synonymous with uh, lawlessness, lawlessness in America. And I kind of wanted to look at it from the perspective of the community and with this idea that part of the way that you get away with sort of exploiting a community is by exotifying it. And that's certainly what happened to Chinatown at the time, because it was seen as this place of underground tunnels and slave girls that became a license for the police to be heavy handed. You know, the Chinatown squad would, would, uh, you know, in the search for Tong members would be chopping down doors with fire axes in order to get to them. And this was all during the guise of exotifying the community that was there. That's actually a great segue to my next question, which is, um, you know, you, you mentioned kind of films like Chinatown, you mentioned kind of other um, works set in Chinatown. How has the noir setting traditionally handled Asian characters? I, I mean, it, it, they've handled it in two, in two ways. I think certainly Polanski's movie and Dashiell Hammett's short stories, um, they've been sort of the most iconic. And generally Chinatown... It, you, you see it in Polanski's Chinatown. Chinatown as a community barely exists in, in Roman Polanski's movie. It's there for the metaphor. It's there for the metaphor of the closing line of forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. And what that means is Chinatown is synonymous with lawlessness. It's synonymous with corruption where, where good doesn't sort of win out in, in the end. And that kind of became what, what Chinatown became synonymous with in, in sort of the noir canon. And a lot of this, and, and that's on one side. On the flip side of it, though, and the other thing I found really interesting was that the 1930s was also a time where Asian crime solvers like Charlie Chan, Mr. Moto, Mr. Wong Detective became very popular. And even though they didn't lean into the noir aspects of the crime genre they were a part of, I part of this to me was reclaiming the Chinatown of noir iconography with the Asian crime solvers of American pop culture history and, and, and doing a story that's shown through the lens of, you know, what we know now about, about contemporary race. So I like to talk about the, the comic now. Um, Mm -hmm. 
so I mean, so what was it about about the noir genre, the noir, the noir setting that appealed to you as a as a comics writer? I, you know, I, I as a comics writer and the way my brain is wired, I, I think in genre. I love genre. I love the tropes, and I love the power that comes from the tropes. That you know, that if you look at it through a certain light at a certain angle. Uh, you can use that familiarity to comment on bigger things in society. And that's one of the things I saw, you know, when I when I was looking at the tropes of the noir, noir genre, the bleakness, the, the cynicism, the one person, you know, striving for truth in a world that doesn't seem to care, it, it I realized that by throw by throwing that genre on top of Chinatown in 1936 and, you know, this ongoing story of the history of Asian America, of Asian America, that the tropes really added to the themes I wanted to explore. It, it, one of the things I've always said about this book is that it hopefully uh, gives you something familiar that you haven't seen before. And as a result is greater than the sum of its parts. And, And I really hope that is the case. I really hope that, by examining something, by using something like noir to examine all this stuff. The other thing I love about noir, it's is that it's so. And yes, there's French noir as well, but there's something about it that is so iconically American. And I wanted to tell a story about the Chinese Exclusion Act and sort of America's history, its anti uh, anti Asian history, to use something that's classically American and and imbue it with these substances. I found that I found that interesting. I found it as an interesting way to look at the. At, to, to look at the topics, I've always seen genre, not just norm, but genre itself as sort of a funhouse mirror to sort of look at our world. And and it, sometimes it's just about finding the right genre with the right topics to really bring that out. So let's talk about the the Chinese-American lead um, of the comic, Edison Hart. Um, what were some of your inspirations in developing uh, Edison's character? I mean, the big one... Certainly the China, the Asian crime solvers that I mentioned in the 1930s, Charlie Chan, Mr. Moto, Mr. Wong Detective. But really the thing I leaned into the most was the story of Changapana, the first Asian American, the first Chinese American cop uh, who was in Hawaii. And he has a lot in common with Edison Hark. I, I borrowed, I was inspired pretty liberally by his life. Uh, the fact that, you know, he, uh, the fact that he would go undercover into into Chinese opium and gambling dens. And his job was pretty much to, you know, find out who the, the biggest troublemakers there were and report back to the cops. And I love what I saw in China Perna looking at it from a contemporary standpoint is, and listen, there's no way I can know sort of what was going on and what his conflicts were sort of at the time. But from a more contemporary standpoint, this looked like a way he, part of his job looked like that of an Uncle Tom. Uh, he was, for all intents and purposes, you know, in, in, in this framed in this lens, a race trader. And that was interested, interesting to me in, in a genre sense. And it provided a way to dramatize and literalize and heighten this conflict that I think all immigrant Americans have, where you're caught between two cultures. And part of finding your own way is deciding how much of each culture you want to you want to take from and and to make part of your identity. So maybe I think this is another good segue into I think an idea that the comic grapples with, which is the idea of um, respectability politics. You know, some Chinese mm-hmm. characters in the in the comic 
are deliberately performing in ways to make them more appealing or acceptable to white Americans. Um, I mean, Edison Hark is is one going down one path. Um, the other is, uh, I believe it's I believe it's Terrence um, yes. who is very strongly saying like we have to be the community has to be better. We have to show that we are can stand up for ourselves um, and be accepted by white America. I guess kind of what are, what are your thoughts on the idea of respectability politics and how have you tried to maybe express some of these thoughts um, in the Good Asian? I mean, the, the questions around respectability politics, that's, that's definitely a huge question in, a, in and of itself. And I think one of the things that history has sort of shown is, you know, the, the illusion and the, the fallacy of respectability politics. Like, well, you know what, I, I say that and it is, you know, I want to say there's a part of me that, that it's, it, I guess it's a conflict in its, in, in its continual debate. There's a part of me that wants to say there's, you know, failings, failings to the ideas of respectability politics, that the idea that you, if you, that if you act good enough, if you, you, you do what society wants you enough, then you will be rewarded. Well, history has shown that it hasn't been the case. History has shown is that that's a rigged game. On the other hand, even though it's, it's a rigged game, it's also undeniable that, you know, Chinese Americans after serving in World War II, that, you know, that provided, that provided um, privileges or, or the community was able to make steps forward because of s- sacrifices and work that Asians had done to prove that they, that they were quote unquote worth it. So the idea of respectability politics is such a, is such, is such a trap. I think one of the things that we're at right now in, in this particular time, it is, this, it's in the Asian community, at least it's sort of seeing the live respectability politics and realizing we're a little bit more prone to examine the ways it doesn't work. And the, the flaws in the society that says that, oh, if you just act in a certain way, you know, the mainstream America, mainstream white America, white culture will sort of accept you and to champion the values of you know, all the different cultures that are there. But at the time, I think it there wasn't a community in that such numbers. And so we couldn't engage in that conversation in quite the same way. So I don't know, that's a very roundabout way of saying, I guess, that Respectability politics were probably the best option at the time for survival for many Asian Americans. But as time has progressed, we've shown the things that are sacrificed and the things that are compromised by, you know, by letting yourself believe too much in respectability politics. So the comic is being presented as a story about the, you know, quote unquote, first immigrant group to be mm-hmm. barred in the United States. Um, I guess why why use that framing, and and how do you think the Good Asian maybe relates to our conversation about immigration today? I think the Good Asian, and specifically the Ch- Chinese Americans at that time, the thing that's most fascinating about that is that the Chinese Exclusion Act and the things that they did to police the Chinese Exclusion Act, it is the basis of all our immigration policy. All of our immigration policy is was based on. America's reaction to the Chinese Exclusion Act, green cards, border patrol, all of that came from the reaction to, to, to the Chinese Exclusion Act. So, so part of it is to say that the Chinese were, in that sense, the first illegal aliens. It was the first immigration ban. And, and part of it is to connect this conversation about immigration that's happened you know, since 1882, since the, the concept of illegal aliens, illegal Americans. 
um, which in, in illegal immigrants, which were, you know, which were the Chinese. So it, it, for me, it's a little hard to, to, to separate, you know, the Chinese of 1882, the Chinese of 1936 from, you know, the contemporary conversation about immigration, because in a way it's all been the same conversation. It's all been a conversation about respectability politics. It's all been a conversation about these particular immigrants are good. These particular immigrants are bad. And how will we, how will we, decide between them but also like and the thing that's more interesting to me is that how if you are part of the group that is designated as quote-unquote bad where what is your identity as americans and and, you know as part of being sort of a hyphen american how do you find your sense of self and your sense of identity through that so in, in reading your comic, I, I was struck by something and a few connections with, with some other works that have been released recently. Um, you know, there, there seems to be a number of, of let's say, books written in, in the style of Westerns that star Chinese-American, Asian-American lead characters now. Um, so there's definitely, I think, like, like, like a growing, let's say, body of work that deals with Chinese-Americans, Asian-Americans on the West Coast during the, let's say, late 19th to early 20th century. Um, And the thought that I had was that this seems to present a different understanding of the American experience, which is, you feel like like with most groups in the United States, um, even other minority groups, it's very much a, you're traveling from either, either from East to West, or maybe you're dealing with a, with a Hispanic population kind of South to North. Whereas I think stories that talk about the Asian American community, especially on the West Coast, that's an, was it a, they're, for them going West is actually traveling East across the ocean, um, which seems to lead, it's a very different relationship with the United States, a very different relationship with, let's say, the the history of the United States. They don't have Mm -hmm. the baggage that comes from everything that happened out East. Mm -hmm. I, I guess, do you think that stories set on the West Coast, especially stories that star um, the Asian American, the Asian immigrant community, um, how does it lead to, I think, a different understanding of the American experience? I think, you know, I think the, the big, the biggest difference, I think, comes from the fact, and, and geographically, just the fact that they're set in the West is, like you say, just the fact that that was the easiest way for Asians to kind of come to America. I think the big conflict between, be, between East and West and between, you know, Asian and sort of American culture it is, is how the East and Western cultures are so different. The Eastern, you know, speaking in broad terms, Eastern culture, and I, I'm, I spent five years growing up in Thailand, it's more community-based, whereas America is more individual, you know, it's more about individuality and more individual-based. And so I think part of that is there's that friction that comes between those two different cultures, and especially the person who has to grow up with a with a foot in, in both cultures, that to me is a unique um, is a unique conf- is a unique conflict. Even the conflict of when to stand up and when to stand out is is a different conflict than you know what you would get from East coming into West. Because even an East coming into West story, while there is a there while there is a lot of difference between American and European culture. Western culture in that way is more individualistic than Eastern culture. And so as a result, there are similar themes that sort of pop up there, whereas they're just very different themes when you're talking about Eastern culture make, bumping heads with Western culture. 
So I think I have, I have one more question um, for you today, which is, I mean, obviously, you know, there's been a very uh, broad conversation recently about uh, representation, I think especially Asian American rep- representation um, when it comes to media in novels and comics and TV and movies. Um, and uh, there have been some successes. I think there have probably also been people kind of falling into the usual pitfalls that, that, that come with uh, attempts to lead to better representation. Um, but I guess kind of what's your perspective on this conversation about representation and Asian American rep- representation specifically? I think we're in a really interesting time right now where, you know, one of the fun things, the fascinating things and exciting things about the book is that I think at this particular moment, I think Asian America as a culture is trying to define, to more concretely define what it is. You know, I think African-American literature, there are clear themes and a clear history that comes there. You know, I could say the same thing about Latino culture and Latino Latino literature. Asian-American culture is a little different in the sense of, you know, the thing I love to say is that if you look at Latino culture, you know, Latinos incorporate many different countries and many different cultures, but the same, at the very least, they're, they, the common denominator they have is language. Asian Americans don't even have that. So what is the common denominator between all these groups, these different groups of Asian Americans that have kind of been lumped together to, for, you know, for political power and, and, and to protect their political well, well-being? I think there is a conversation right now in terms of what that what that means and what those themes are and and one of the things that I that I find interesting about the book right now is is it's it's trying to 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 define that in in its its own way and you know in the way that seven blind men will tell you a different thing about what the, what an elephant is I think part of what you're seeing now with all of these different sort of Asian American stories and representation is just to try to you know is to de- define well what is the Asian American experience? What does that mean? What are the themes? Where is it? Are its themes? And I think in terms of the broader question of sort of like, you know, the value of representation and, and all that, you know, I think by looking at, it's funny, the more I look at this book, the more, uh, when I look at the good Asian, what it's, what it's an ambitions to be and what it is so much of it. And when I look at, this, because the good Asian at, at the heart, even though it's about Chinese Americans, it's about Asians America. It's it's hoping to talk about Asian Americans in general and use that as a way to talk about Asian Americans in general. And even just the way I phrased it earlier, this idea that you know differing groups can bonded together by a common name for for survival sense, though that's a you can on the one hand you can say those are themes unique to Asian Americans, but on the other hand that if you're telling that story, that's also in a way a story about America. You know, I could say that's the story about, about the Democratic Party in America right now. I could say that's the story of America right now. And I actually think, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why representation is important. But one of the things I'm interested at the moment of looking at Asian American and the themes that pop up with it is, I actually think it's a way to talk about America. It's it's a way to look at the things that unite different groups of Americans into sort of a into a, a whatever this common thing that we call Amer- being American actually is. So I, I hope that addresses your question. I mean, maybe maybe I've, I do have one more question actually, which is okay. how how's the I mean how how's the comic been been received um, in terms of yeah. I 
I've been very grateful for the reception for the comic. You know, a, a book about Asian American, no one, you know, is thinking, no one looking to make a quick buck decides to do a book about Asian American history, even if they couch it in genre, even if they couch it in a, in a noir thriller. So this was a book I really wanted to exist. It, Edison Hark was a character I wanted to exist. I wanted a male you know, strong, male, conflicted, sexy protagonist who was also who was also Asian that didn't have anything to do with martial arts or mysticism, which, which again, I'm a big fan of all that stuff, but I just want an alternative to all that stuff. And so I didn't really know if this book would have legs at, at all, but I've been really grateful to the, the, the uh, response it's gotten to be comic book community, the creators have loved the book, continually talk about the book. Uh, sales, it launched at twice the numbers as my last book did. Uh, you know, the reviews have been glowing and great. So I've, I've been really, you know, I've been really uh, grateful for, for how well the book is done. You know, it's a serialized book. So part of, the, part of the anxiety, I guess, with serialized comics is, you know, you launch, you launch strong, but you know, can you hold your numbers? And so far we're doing well, but you know, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to quite breathe a sigh of relief until the book is done and I see where our finals number, final numbers end up. But I've been really, really grateful to the response and the reception the book has, and especially by how much of, um, how much support my publisher Image Comics has given it. And I'll tell you, I am very excited to see what the next <laughs> issue, um, uh, but with that, thank you for listening to an interview with uh, Pornsack Bichette Shote, uh, writer of The Good Asian. Um, Pornsack, one actual last question for you. Uh, I think I already know what's what's next for you, but you can answer anyway. Um, what's next for you, and where can people find your work? Uh, well, people can find me online at real underscore Pornsack on Twitter and real underscore PSAC on Instagram. Um I have more issues of The Good Asian. I, I, it's a 10-issue series, and so I'll be writing that, I think, it's a early next year. Um, and then uh, I have... I'm writing on a television show for HBO Max on the side, and uh, I have another idea for a comic. I have, I have more stories for, Ed, for Edison Hart planned if the book, you know, if the sales warranted, and so far, so good, although... I won't commit to any, I'm too superstitious to commit to anything until the final numbers are in. And then I have certainly plans for more comics coming along the way. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. Um, please keep listening to the Asian Review Books podcast. Now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. If you want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more information on who's coming up on the show. But before then... Thank you so much, Pornsack, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. This was fun.